Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This special episode of the Powercast is brought to you with limited commercial interruptions by Namecheap. To learn more, visit radio.namecheap.com. And by GoToMeeting, and to learn more about them, visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcast. Now, this year has been a sad one in the UFO field. We had first the death of John Keel. It was a major event. And then we heard of the passing of Richard Hall. Now, in both cases, we were talking about men in their golden years who had done quite a bit of life's work. And they died as a result of long-standing illnesses. Mac Tonys came as an absolute shock to me. The man was 34 years old. He was part of what we call the new wave of UFO research. And I got used to every day going on Twitter and just seeing five or six comments from him. And then the comments stopped coming. And then I learned he was gone. Paul Kimball, what can you tell us about Mac Tony's that we should know about to get started. Um, well, the um, I don't know. Yeah, wow. Look, <clears throat> lost for words. Uh, he was one of the. You know, from my point of view, I would say there are maybe ten people on this planet that uh, that I would trust um, with anything, and Mac was one of them. Um, he was. He was articulate, intelligent, sensitive. I mean, you know, sometimes you, you would get a show like this and you would say, oh, well, you know, um, nobody's perfect. And Mac wasn't. I mean, none of us are perfect. But I think it's a, it's a sign. I mean, like, God forbid, I should shuffle off the mortal coil tomorrow. Um, there would be people who would be unhappy. And, but I'm a confrontational guy. There, there would be some people, I'm sure, somewhere who would go, well, you know, maybe we're better off. Mac's the kind of guy with his passing, um, everybody, everybody's life who uh, he touched or everyone he became involved with or got to know him, even through the Internet, and a lot of his friends were, were Internet-based. Um, Greg and Nick and I, and I were privileged enough to get to know him personally. I don't know about Patrick, whether you had ever met him in person. But nobody has a bad thing to say about Mac Tony as he passed, passed away. Um, nothing but good things. And I think that's absolutely true. I think it speaks to his character. I think it speaks to who he was. And sadly, unfortunately, I think it speaks as well to who he would have been. Um, he had such a bright future, not just in paranormal research. Um, we were working on projects that had nothing to do with UFOs and, and stuff like that, fiction and, and drama. He was a, a, a fine budding playwright. Uh, he would have been, he would have become, a, a, I, I'm convinced, a very good screenwriter. And, um, and his short stories, which I think a lot of people in the UFO world are perhaps not familiar with. I mean, he, he was a very good fiction writer too, and he, he had a, so much promise and so much potential that it's, it's, it's stunning. It's, it's just, I thought it was a joke when I get the email that he'd passed away. I thought it was kind of a sick practical joke. And, um, unfortunately it wasn't. So I'm, for me, I'm sad on a personal level. Um, because I considered him one of my best friends, um, but just it's a loss for um, paranormal research. But beyond that, it's a loss for people. I mean, he just had so much to give. I, you know, that's that's what makes it so sad. Like you said, Keel and and Dick Hall, they they had had their shots, and while well, you're sad to see them go, um, you know, they had lived a good life uh, and done a lot of things. And Mac, he lived a good life, but there was so much more for him to do, and uh, so many more people that I think would have benefited greatly getting to know him. So that's what I would say about Mac Tony's. He was one of the best people I've, uh, I've ever had a chance to meet. 
um, in my 42 years on this planet, and I, uh, he'll be sorely missed. Nicholas Redfern, you were in touch with Mac's parents. Can you tell us about his last days? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, it was one of these things where I think, uh, as Paul kind of noted, it was first treated as sort of a, hopefully, a very, very sick joke on someone's part, and that that was all there was to it. And I sort of first picked up on this on the on the Thursday evening um, of last week, and then as the night went on. Um, people who were his friends came forward, several of them emailed me, uh, one asked if I wanted to give him a call, which I did, and we chatted for about 30 minutes or so um, about the circumstances. And then on, I was away over the weekend, and when we got back, uh, there was a phone message from Mac's mom, so I gave her a call. She said to me that they'd had breakfast on the Sunday morning, uh, everything was fine, and then there hadn't been any contact with him for a few days. And he was ultimately found Thursday afternoon, having gone to bed at some point Sunday night and quite literally died in his sleep, you know, still in a, still in a sleeping position. Um, and she told me that it, that it was his heart and that, you know, it was just a very, very unfortunate passing. Um, I would echo and agree with everything that, that Paul said. Um, I would add two things. One being that I think, you know, I would agree with everything Paul said about Mac's personal character, aside from, you know, his involvement within the world of 40 honor, etc. But in terms of his research and work, I think one of the reasons why Mac got a lot of respect and coverage and why people saw him as like a good future force within the subject was because he didn't really toe the establishment party line of nuts and bolts aliens coming down to abduct people to take their DNA, etc., etc. He had a lot of good and interesting alternative theories, and I think that's the important thing we we should always remember that even now, 60 years after Kenneth Arnold, that the U in UFO still stands for unidentified, didn't stand for alien spacecraft. And Mac astutely recognized that fact, uh, hence the reason, you know, why he was focusing on his Crypto Terrestrials book. And, um, of course, the other thing that surfaced after Mac's death, which sort of pissed me off and which I think is kind of a, a classic symptom of ufology is several pe people surfaced to say that, you know, that the death was somehow mysterious. You know, as I've pointed out in comments when people have said this, we're all human beings first and ufologists second and unfortunately some people go before their time. It's not because they're targeted by MJ-12 or any such nonsense. It's, it's just a tragedy. That's really all it is. So. So that's sort of the background to what happened and, you know, my my views on Mac, which I would have expanded on based on what Paul said, you know. So uh, I guess we're sort of both in accordance with, with, with uh, Mac's character in that respect. Uh, Nick, did Mac have siblings at all? Did he have brothers or sisters? Um, you know, no, he, he's an only, he was an only child, uh, David. He was an only child, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. It just it, it's something that when you know when I heard about his passing, I immediately one of my first uh, uh, impulses was to was to tell Gene, you know, when we put together a show and we knew we were going to, um, that maybe it would be possible to have some of his family members on, because uh, you know this is somebody who apparently 
was really involved in doing, for example, writing work fairly early on. You had mentioned the short stories, Paul, and it looks like the short stories he had written, he had done while he was still in high school or before, or pretty much when he graduated from high school. That's when he actually had his first book ready. Is that right? Yeah, it was a collection of short stories called Illumined Black, which, um, depending on what time of day you caught him in, would either cause him to wince <laughs> because he would, he would go, oh, my God, these are things I wrote in high school. Uh, or, you know, he'd, he'd kind of say, well, look, you know, there's – I remember when I, I asked him, I said, look, I, I'd like to read your book. And maybe we could do a play or a, a film script out of one of these. And he was like, ah, that, you know, no. But then he sent me one or two of the stories, one of which became a play that we did called Doing Time, which is now a screenplay um, that will go into production next year. And, um, and you know, it was really good. Uh, it was very, it's very, his writing was very Philip, he was very much inspired by Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were certainly echoes of it in that. He was a really good writer. He had a, that's what his college degree was in, um, creative writing. So I can't remember the name of the, uh, the college in the United States where he got it from. It was a small liberal arts school. Wasn't it Ottawa University, actually? Which one? Ottawa University. I think that's where he got his bachelor's degree. It might be. I, he told me a couple times. I just can't remember. I mean, it was a pretty yeah. small liberal arts school. Um, but he, yeah, no, he was a really good writer. And, and Nick's quite right when he touches on the things that Mac brought to the UFO world, which was an open mind and also critical thinking and just a willingness to be wrong. That was a great thing about Mac. He was always willing to be wrong in the search for truth. But um, I think he had a far, people are saying this is a great loss for ufology and such. Um, it is, but I think it's, it's a great loss, um, just for, for writing in general. He, he had a very good career ahead of him as a writer. And I think that's, a lot of that's come out from some of his friends who were writers who, who admired his writing too. Yeah, he's, he's just, he's a really bright young man that's, uh, with so much talent. Patrick Weege of Anomalous Books. You published Mac's first book? Well, his uh, his first nonfiction book, yes. Uh, I was drawn to Mac's writings. I guess it was must have been in the fall of two thousand and one, and started following his work online. And um, then in in the summer of two thousand and two, he he published a little thing called "A Venusians and Coffee." It's a little four hundred word piece about uh, sitting at a coffee shop. And reading, uh, Colin Bennett's Looking for Orthon and happening to notice this rather strange woman in the, in the coffee shop. And when I read that piece, I said, I've got to get in touch with this guy. This guy's a really good writer. <laughs> and, um, so I did. And it turns out he had reviewed one of my books on his website. So he was pleased to hear from me. And at first he, um, he was thinking of doing, uh, writing some fiction for me because at that time I was the editor of Paraview Pocket Books and most of the books we were doing were nonfiction but also a few fiction. But as it turns out, he had only done short stories and anthologies are, you know, not very well received in the mainstream publishing world unless you have a big name these days. So over time, we, uh, we talked, you know, I saw his Mars website and I was like really fascinated by his thinking on the whole subject. So eventually that book became 
his book After the Martian Apocalypse, which I think is still a very good book and one of the key books on the whole Mars enigma. Now, he was, before he passed, he was actually doing another book on what he calls crypto-terrestrial theory. What can you tell us about that? Right. After the, the Martian book appeared from Simon & Schuster, he obviously started thinking about writing another book. And he, his first thought was something about the, uh, the post-human future of some kind. He was very interested in technology, uh, how human beings would evolve, what that whole thing would, would look like. And gradually it shifted into this thesis about crypto terrestrials, where we're not talking about aliens from outer space, but aliens from our own planet that have been here as long as we have, if not longer. And he started uh, putting little blog pieces, uh, putting pieces on his blog about it and getting some reaction from his readers. And he's been collecting those pieces for, I don't know, at least a couple of years now. And he was, um, I had recommended that he try to sell the book to a mainstream publisher so that he could get an advance. I set him up with an agent who tried to sell the book unsuccessfully. So I said, don't worry, Mac, if you can't find a publisher for it, uh, Anomalous Books would be most happy to publish the book. And he was due to deliver the book to me uh, at the beginning of November. And uh, so that's going to be quite a feat to try to get the manuscript. Uh, I can give you some details about uh, tracking that down if you're interested. Absolutely. Because people really want to – people now especially really want that book. A lot of right. people really were really very uh, uh, very hopeful that that book would be out sooner than than later. Right. Well, what happened is that apparently the beginning of September, Mac had asked one of his friends to print out uh, the, the version of the manuscript that he had at that time because his printer had broken down. So this man uh, – printed out the manuscript for him so that Mac could do some physical cutting and pasting of the manuscript. And I'm hoping that his mother will be able to find that cut and paste, pasted version of the manuscript and send it on to me. I've spoken to his mother. She's a very nice lady. Um, she's totally computer illiterate. She wouldn't even know how to turn on a computer, I'm afraid. And uh, apparently her, his father is not familiar with computers either. So I suggested that they must have some friend who is, and maybe they could uh, rescue some you know, recent version of the manuscript from the computer, or at least if she could find among his papers the cut-and-paste version of the manuscript that he was working on. And I'm assuming, since we were very close to the 1st of November, that... It should be more or less in the final shape that he that he wished to submit it to me. Hmm. Now, Paul, is there any uh, one that knows about the status of the blog as it currently stands? Are there any are are there any um, plans that you know of to archive his blog so that it doesn't just vanish? No, um, I honestly don't know. Uh, so, no. <laughs> 
I'm the loss for words on that one, but um, I don't know if he gave his password or his information to anybody else, or whether that sort of went with him to the great beyond. So, well, so all that's going to be on his computer, obviously, and anyone who's true enough who can you know has access to it can can post something on his blog about that. Right now, if you go to the Post Human Blues uh, blog, you'll see that. There are something like 80 comments on mm-hmm. his uh, latest post, and these right. are from readers learning about, you know, his death and not believing it and expressing their, their terrible sorrow. Greg Bishop, before we go into further details, tell us how you came to know Mac Tonys. Well, I was introduced by Paul um, in 2000. I believe, or at least he told me about it. Um, and we had some limited email contact at that point. And then uh, at the New Frontiers Conference in late 2006, for the first time um, in, in the real world instead of the virtual world, and uh, listened to his talk, uh, the post-human future talk, um, which I enjoyed immensely, uh, because I don't know if he'd ever spoken publicly before, at least on the on the uh, paranormal. So that you know it was a revelation, probably for Paul too, to actually have him live speaker uh, in Mac talking about something that was uh, not exactly about UFOs, but intimately connected to it um, in the ways that people who have read his site will know and knew who he was and has read have read his stuff. Um, and at that at that conference, I got to talk to him quite a bit. I remember the one thing I remember from that conference about Mac was I collect weird music about UFOs and Bigfoot and all that, uh, along with other strange things, funny funny music. And um, he said he wanted to hear some of it, so we went to my room and we sat there for about three hours just playing funny music, <laughs> and I just watched him crack up. Um, you know, he'd have this look of wonder come over his face and he'd start cracking up. Um, and so I, you know, dealt a whole bunch of those on a drive or something for him to, for him to take home. Uh, and then, you know, after that, um, one other time they came out and Paul again brought him out to California to, to work on, um, best evidence. And we both appeared on my show in, in, uh, 2006 as well, or no, I think it was 2007. Actually, anyway, they both the trip to California came first, Greg. That oh, was you did? Okay. Yeah, well, that was I, I, yeah, that was May of 2006, and then... Um, okay, yeah, my brain shot. Yeah. Yeah, and they both came on uh, Ronnie Mysterioso, and we just sat there for two hours just hashing ideas out and talking and cracking jokes, and it was one of the most fun shows I'd ever done. And uh, after that... Uh, we we knew each other better, so we about every month or two we we have a conversation. Uh, you know, one of us would call the other, and we talked for two or three or four hours about various things. And the last time I talked to him actually was um, right after the Art Bell program. Or not Art Bell. I'm sorry, George Norrie, the Coast to Coast from uh, late September. I called him immediately after they they finished the show. And he said, how did I do? And I said, you hit a home run, Matt. Don't worry about it. My God. I mean, everything was explained clearly. And I think people that are ready for these kind of ideas, um, your appearance on that show is just, it's just perfect timing. And you did a great job. And then we talked for another, like, three or four hours. And I've mentioned this on the blog. Um, 
we've been talking recently about doing a, a fiction project together because I can't write fiction and um, he likes some of my ideas and back and forth and we're going to uh, take some of these things we've been talking about on the phone and online and all this and, and put them into a, a fictional format so now since he's gone, I guess I kind of owe it to him to learn how to write fiction. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that you're definitely going to have to do because those ideas can't be allowed to disappear. No. And I don't know what the ideas are, but I'm kind of expecting they're going to be marvelous. And that's something that would really be needed in the science fiction field. So Yeah, well, basically we were talking about a way to popularize some of the stuff that he was talking about. Um, in the Crypto Terrestrials book that's upcoming, thankfully, um, what he's been talking about on his blog, and, you know, obviously the stuff that I've been talking about on my blog and in my books, and, you know, our backgrounds and the people we admired, you know, everybody knows about those Arkeel and Belay and a few other writers, um, but some of them not science fiction writers, um, some of them just science writers or, or, or uh, theorists or whatever. Um, all these things that we talked about, we thought, well, wouldn't it be nice because most people get ideas through, you know, movies or TV or whatever. They don't sit there and watch documentaries on things, you know, to their, to their horrible loss. Um, and we thought, well, what if we took this stuff and made it into into some sort of story that could explicate these ideas for people, the way that Phil Dick did, and the way that, um, uh, uh, well, any 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 science fiction writer like Asimov or Carl, Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan's ideas about what extraterrestrial life was and what the contact would be and all that were in contact, obviously, the movie and the book. And um, we were thinking of sort of doing the same thing with the cryptoterrestrials thing. You know, there, there's just something I think needs to be mentioned about that appearance on Coast to Coast. And uh, I know that um, Mac was a little nervous about going on, but to 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 pay tribute to how great of a speaker Mac was, he even made George Norrie sound good, which yeah. is not an easy uh, feat, to be sure. Um, you know, yeah, he was, exactly. it sounded like Norrie was even having like a good time with the conversation. My God, it almost sounded like Norrie was really paying attention. And I think that says a lot about the kind of person that Mac was, that, you know, usually when, when you listen to Coast to Coast, Nori just sounds clueless, like he's not even listening. Uh, that one, it sounded like Nori was actually paying attention because Mac was the kind of person you sort of, you had to listen to. I, he, he had this very quiet way about him, but at the same time, um, what was, what came out of him was just so coherent. You sort of had to pay attention by default. And, it's, and, and that, and that was something I, I mean, I listened to that whole Coast to Coast interview after the fact. And it was, uh, you know, Nori should be glad to have someone like Mac come on. I know that it took a long time for Mac to get on that show. And it, you, you wonder, boy, if they had just been smart enough to have him on a bunch of times, we'd have that much more Mac on the record. For future generations, you know, very frustrating. Yeah, well, there's a lot of programs he was on, including yours, mine, and a few others, and it's it, uh, that's what we will have. And plus, his uh, contribution to Paul's stuff, his documentaries. 
Yeah, it's, it's funny because Greg and I bookended him on that night with a little, Greg had a little uh, knife shot to him during the show because uh, he called me before he went on. He was very nervous and he knew I had done three hours with George a couple of years ago. It's hard to do three hours with anyone. So, and we talked for about an hour and, and I, you know, about a whole bunch of stuff, but constantly coming back to the look back, you're going to be fine. I saw you give a lecture for an hour and a half in Halifax without a single note. On, on post-humanism and, <laughs> and had the audience, including my folks, you know, who are probably not big into post-humanism, I think it's safe to say. And, and my mom to this day, you know, when she heard Mac had passed away, she said he was such a gentleman and he was so much fun to listen to and thought-provoking. Um, so I said, Mac, you'll be fine. And then we got to talking and it's, it's nice. I have a nice final memory for, of Mac because he obviously had the spy phone, you know, the collar display. And, he, and I heard the click, click. I go, oh, look, oh, I got a call. Hold on a sec, Paul. And he looks down and goes, hey, Paul, look, I gotta, I gotta go. Sorry, it's a girl. <laughs> I, just, I just went, yeah, sure, man, no problem, because we were both. I said, yeah, have fun. And that's the last thing. I, he said, yeah, well, I'll talk to you later. And the last thing I ever heard him really say was, you know, I got to go. It's a girl. So um, I think he was he was on a high. He was, you know, coast to coast was a great thing for him. He did really well, as Greg said. Uh, I think his personal life seemed to be in, in pretty good shape. And, um, you know, if you have to go at any age, uh, Nick and I were talking about this uh, yesterday. I think, you know, the best way you can think of to go is to just go in your sleep, given all the various alternatives. And at a time in your life, sure, it, it would have been great from that 50 or 60 more years. Absolutely. It's a terrible tragedy. But at least he was, you know, he was, uh, he was happy. And, um, and that's, that's a good thing too. So I, so I choose to focus on that as well. He seemed to be having a good time and that's, that's a good thing. Any of you know whether he, any overt signs of illness prior to this or was it just one of those things? I hate uh, to ask the question, I, but it comes to mind. I did, when I spoke to his mother and, and basically asked her what happened, she told me that, um, about a year ago, Mac had had some heart palpitations. It says his heart was running very quickly. And he had been checked out, thoroughly checked out at the hospital. Uh, and they'd given him a clean bill of health. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. Obviously, she thinks that that's probably the underlying cause of, of, of what happened. Right. And not to dwell on anything morbid, but so it, it sounds like he was... He was there in bed for a few days before anybody really kind of figured it out. And from what I gather, one of the girls that worked where he worked noticed his absence. And I guess she was the one that instigated, from what I gather, reading those that uh, last uh, post on his blog, it sounds like that's what happened. Does anybody have any more insight? Again, not to, and it's kind of a morbid detail, but I think people would like to know. Right. Well, what I, from what I understand, once again, is that his work called him every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm. By Thursday, they realized they weren't going to get an answer from Mac. They had to go to his family. So someone at mm. work knew to call his mother. His mother then called the police and the apartment superintendent, and they went into his apartment. Got it. <sighs> All right. Yeah, I thought it was important. I, you know, you say that it's morbid, but the thing is, I've heard, you know, conspiracy theories within hours, which mm -hmm. was kind of shocking and, and irritating to me. And then, on the other hand, a couple people have written saying, well, he was depressed anyway, and um, maybe he was on um, 
psych meds and things like that. And I said, he never told me any such thing. Yes, he was depressed, which he did tell me. But mm -hmm. this year, like um, uh, Paul said, everything seemed to be falling in place for him. And that, it's the, the last time I talked to him in September, he laughed easier and had a lot more positive things to say than I've ever heard since I've known him in, you know, the four years, three or four years that I've known him. So, I mean, I'm glad we could say this on the, on this show and then people can listen to it, that um, until some horribly, you know, obvious piece of information comes out to refute all everything we've just said, it just sounds like, like it was one of those things, horribly unfortunate and tragic, but... Um, just you know what you would call natural causes. Mm. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's just a, it's one of those things. I know that, and and you know I I feel almost kind of silly saying this, but I'll just say it. I know that uh, you, Greg, and Paul, and, and Nick, you guys were really close to him. I know that when uh, I saw Paul's post on the Paracast forums, which is where I first found out about it. It was really kind of intense because I, 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 I saw the note and I just, just involuntarily, I, I just I started crying. And, you know, it's, I, I, I mean, I feel even a little weird saying it right now here on the show. It was just like totally involuntary. I, I, I had this shot of anger go through me like, what? That, that's not right. I just really, it, it just like instantly started tearing up and, uh, it, it really, it, it, it threw me, and I'll say this now because the day that I guess he was found Thursday just happened to be my birthday. And I'm, I'm not real big on birthdays anyway, and, and, you know, I really didn't even celebrate my birthday, and, um, I, I heard about that, and I thought, well, boy, that boy, if I really wasn't celebrating my birthday, man, now, just, I mean, I just had such a strong visceral reaction to hearing that, because of the fact that it just seems so out of left field, it, it just, it really truly stunned me. Uh, you know, because yeah, you hear about the people like uh, John Keel, who we knew was was sick for a long time, or or Dick Hall, who was in ill health for a long time. But um, you know, with with Mac, you just you had no sense that anything like this was coming and you really had, I, I had this incredibly strong feeling that all of his best work was ahead of him. So I, I just want to say that to get off my chest because, uh, you know, it's not, I've not had that reaction many times when I've heard someone died and, and I had that reaction when I hear that Mac had passed. I just started crying. You know, when I saw the message, I was half asleep and I read this message and I said, no, that can't be. It's one of those things of you yeah. get a message about something and it's, not very good news, and you kind of just close off, say, no, that's not possible, and then your mind shuts down. I didn't realize later what it signified. I should also mention that back in 1988, on the day of my birthday, my father died. That's when he picked the time to die, and I think he knew the day before that happened that he was about at the end of his life because he spent more time on the phone trying to catch up and talk to me as if he realized this is the last time he'll talk to me, so he better make it work. Mm. He better make it thorough, and he better get everything off his chest. So that's what kind of comes back to me when I think about this. That it, it just suddenly happens. And in this case, in my father's case, he was 78, like actually 79, very much in the same age group as John Keel 
and Richard Hall. Here the guy is 34. Yeah, 34, though. I mean, come on. Starting his life. Yeah, well, it, it just, you know, I, I, I'm with you, David. I, I grew up in a family where, um, you know, the sort of motto was Kimball's don't cry. You know, you kind of British stiff upper lip sort of thing and, and right. soldier through it. But, um, yeah, no, I did. Uh, I still, um, I still get uh, teary eyed. I did a, a video sort of tribute um, form. That's what I do. And, uh, you know, photographs and stuff. And I put it to one of, uh, my favorite and his favorite REM songs. And, uh, you know, I can't watch it without sort of getting, even now, a week later, without getting choked up. Mm. But, you know, it sort of also reminds you that, as Greg said, um, we can go at any time, 21, 91, whatever. And mm. the, the, for me, the thing is, I hadn't spoken to Mac. I'd emailed him a couple times, but, you know, we're all busy. I'm, I'm in post-production on a feature film and a television series, so I'm, I don't have a whole lot of time to talk to anybody. And I sort of sat back and I thought, wow, you know, um, I, I probably should call some people that I haven't talked to. Like, the, you know, that list of ten best friends, well, I think I should probably call the other nine um, yeah. and uh, sort of take some time out. Because you can get so wrapped up in what you're doing. And then something like this reminds you that for all the work and, and stuff, at the end of the day, that stuff's just work. And what really matters is, you know, the people that you know and love. And and uh, you shouldn't get so wrapped up in work that you should you should lose focus of that. So, you know, it certainly reminds So I called Greg and Nick and in the UFO community. They'd be my two best friends there. And then, and then touch base with some other old friends that uh, outside the UFO thing. And, uh, you know, I just, Greg, I think in an email said to me, I think it was you, Greg, it might have been Nick, but I'm pretty sure it was Greg. He said, you know, I, I feel like I can still pick up the phone and give him a call. And uh, the realization hasn't quite hit me yet that, that I'm not going to be able to do that again. Um, and that's, uh, when it does hit me, I don't know. <laughs> You'll probably have a few, few beers or something. Well, maybe hmm. we should treat it like they do in New Orleans where we celebrate his life. Yeah. And that's the way to continue this episode, to basically focus on the things he did, his sense of humor. I enjoyed his tweets. I know David's not a person who goes to Twitter. Yeah, I'm not a Twitter person. <laughs> right. Yes, Every day, Mac had like five or six or seven comments on there. You know, little pithy comments because you have 144 letters to fill things in. And you learn what he was doing, what he was working on, or just things he observed. And occasionally I'd send him a little note back, and he'd send me a humorous thing, because he had kind of a wacky sense of humor like the rest of us. And now I kind of regret I didn't have more of a time to talk to him. So he's not one of those tweeting people that put down, like, I just ate a donut or I just picked my nose, right? Well, he's close, close. No, don't call me that. No, lie to me, man. Don't say that. Don't. No, I mean, you know, the thing is that just about anything that happened within a one- or two-hour time frame would end up in his tweets each day. Yeah. yeah, but I want to think they were, you know, pithy and insightful comments. Yes, but they'd be pithy and insightful about the pizza he had. Oh, God. I mean, serious, you know, it was just basically a regular life, the guy living a regular well, life and learning no, about but, the but, person's no, no, regular but, life and what he did. No, let's contrast this to his blog. I mean, his blog, first of all, his blog always had great art on it. So let's just start here. He had a really, really good taste in in visual aesthetics because some of the images he'd find, I'd be like, man, that is cool. You know, there aren't many blogs. It's like everything else. Everybody blogs, right? Or not everybody, but a ton of people do. But here was a guy who, you know, almost like every day had something that I personally found interesting, whether or not it was even in the realm of, 
what you'd call the paranormal. I mean, just like the guy's taste in music and, and animation. And how many fun things that I find on his blog, little pieces of animation or bizarre art. And I know, like, like myself, he really dug Radiohead. And we instantly, like, bonded on that. And he, he like, come up with these really great little Radiohead things I wouldn't see anywhere else. I'd be like, man, geez, where does he find these things? I mean, so, like, with the blog, the blog, his blog had meaningful entries, even if it was, like, you know, pointing to content that wasn't his. But I'm sorry, I want to believe that his his tweets were just as good. But this is why I don't do Twitter, because most people's Twitter stuff is just, you know, just pretty Yeah, no. Yeah. I'd, I'd I'd tell like, you, I'm on Twitter. I do not even pretend that anything there is really sensible, anything that will survive. It's just a daily journal. I, I'd like to comment on that, actually. Please, Patrick. As, as an editor, I tried to, I mean, I was absolutely dazzled by Mac's writing. And as an editor, I wanted him to be productive and to, to write major books. And I tried <laughs> to en encourage him as much as I could. But I was saddened to see that over time his blog posts became shorter and shorter, that he went over to the tweeters and tweeted about his pizza or whatever else, and that he seemed to get, uh, I call it digital distractions from, you know, his thinking, his, his writing. And I, and I was sorry to see that happening and I was, I was trying to get him to focus more on his book to get it out and to, uh, you know, to go more in that direction. So he got sucked into tweeting. Well, tweeting, uh, shorter and shorter blog posts. Uh, I mean, I see that in a number of my writers as well. And I, you know, I have to put them, try to get them back on the path. But uh, it's very difficult these days with all these digital distractions to, you know, kind of waste your time in all these side things. They're entertaining. They're very social. But I don't know if I, I would call it productive. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, look, you know, when he put up the, just like in, the, in that last bunch of blog postings, he had um, some links to that uh, Huxley's Brave New World uh, uh, LP that somebody digitized in MP3s with uh, music by Bernard Herrmann. I mean, I wouldn't have found that. I found it on, on Mac's blog. God bless him. Even if there are a few words of his in there, that he went and found that, that's just rule. I mean, I love that. You know, this is the kind of thing where, where he, he the guy was, at least in my opinion, was a really good data miner. I mean, to go find this kind of stuff, People have to realize that takes it, it actually takes a lot of work to do a blog consistently where, again, even if it's not his own writings, if he's just linking the stuff at that point, And this is like the whole thing about the Internet, where it's a big, huge, wide, shallow pool. And to go find stuff is just so freaking hard. It is. You know, and, and the best blogs are the ones that instantly point you consistently, instantly point you to good stuff. Of all sorts of uh, 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 sourcings. I mean, yeah, that, that Brave New World digitized LP, brilliant stuff. I mean, just wonderful stuff. And had it not been through Max's blog, I don't think I would have found something like that. 
Yeah, the, the nice thing about um, what he would do in his blog is every day I'd look, and you know, I'm a Facebook guy. That's what I do. I, I regularly post on Facebook, so um, you know, I'd see something on his blog, like the Brave New World, and I go, "Oh, okay. Well, I've got you know 960 quote friends on Facebook, so I'd put it up there, and then there'd be people, you know, kind of, and it, you know, it's like Bill Shampoo commercial. One friend tells a friend, and they tell two friends, and so on and so on. Right. And he was he was not the originator of all that stuff. He would mine it from a few other sources, as you say, David. Um, so he would go to things like, um, I can't remember, this, like Boing Boing or whatever, and he'd find these cute little things and then stick them on his blog. But that, to me, that it, it's just sort of his blog was who he was, in a sense. It would tell you who you could find out what you needed to know about who Magatoni's was by kind of looking at his blog. Here's the sort of art he likes. Here's the kind of music he likes. Here's what he writes. Here's what he believes. Here's what he feels. And so of all the blogs that I've read, his was probably the most personal. Um, mine gets personal, or used to get personal every now and then, but his really, you know, even when he wrote his own stuff, a lot of his own personality seeped into it. And um, you touched on something that he and I hit it off uh, immediately. It was music. Um, because unlike Nick, who has absolutely abysmal taste in music, <laughs> you know, Ramones fan, Mac and I were huge, huge Smiths fans, and uh, Nick can't can't abide the Smiths. So, Nick, defend people, yourself. What's that? Nick, defend, defend yourself. yourself. You've been attacked viciously here. We want to hear your defense. Oh, well, the, the Smiths play too many chords. <laughs> I don't, I don't keep, it, keep it simple enough, and they, they don't have enough fuzz boxes and short songs fly very fast. So. <laughs> that, that, that's the kind of forward musical thinking you get from the Birmingham, Birmingham oh, area in England. Yeah. We would expect nothing less. So. <laughs> Actually, I've got a funny little anecdotal story about Mac and music. Um, um, Mac, as you know, is a, a big fan of, of R.E.M., and um, they covered a song um, a few years ago called I Walk With A Zombie. And um, I'm a big fan of zombie films. And me and Mac actually had an exchange online for uh, a few days where we were going to, whenever we were going to speak next at the next conference, I was going to bring my guitar and fuzzbox and amp and everything along and, and play it. And Mac was going to sing the song. But, of course, that, that never happened, so uh, unfortunately. So. <laughs> But uh, who knows? It might have done so. <laughs> <laughs> and also that thing about Morrissey. Morrissey. He had this huge. He had a huge uh, thing about Morrissey. Yeah, well, Morrissey was you know, the former frontman for the Smiths. So, um, so he even followed him after posts. Uh, so, okay. so he was. Well, he was a true Smiths fan then. Yeah, yeah, no, we both are. In fact, we used to joke all the time. I had a chance to see Morrissey. I was out visiting Greg in California with a girl who shall remain unnamed. And, um, you know, she didn't want to, Morrissey was playing in LA at the Palladium. And so I had a chance to see Morrissey, which to me is just underneath McCartney. And the girl didn't want to go. Greg probably remembered this. And she's like, well, yes, I remember. Yeah, she's like, you, she wasn't bad. She said, you can go, Paul. I'll just do, I'll stay here at Greater Place or amuse myself. And I said, well, you know, like, no, we're all friends. Let's do something together. Fine. And I told Mac that story. And there was this 15 seconds of silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> just like total silence. And he said, 
there's no girl as important as a Morrissey concert. I can't believe you. And then he, he <laughs> me out for 10 minutes. I can't believe you didn't go see Morrissey. And um, when uh. he, he wound up meeting uh, about two months later, we, he was in the cast of Doing Time, um, Chris McBride. And uh, he, when he met her, you know, like he didn't already never met her. And she's a nice person, good actor. And he, you could just tell. He did the visceral dislike. <laughs> we, after the rehearsal, he and I were walking because he was staying with me for the week. We were walking back, and and first thing he said, he turned to me. I said, you know, how do you think it went? And he turned to me and he said, I can't believe he chose her over Morrissey. And uh, yeah, that that was Max dry wit and a long memory. So <laughs> undying affection for Morrissey. Um, but yeah, we used to, and the nice thing is, we used to, because he, he'd never seen any of the Smiths, and uh, we used to sort of say, oh my god, you'll see Morrissey, I could have seen him in Manchester actually when I was there uh, in May, and so I emailed him, I said, I missed Morrissey again, and then I went to London, and he was playing there, I missed he's like, oh my god, I can't believe you, like you went to see Phantom of the Opera instead of Morrissey, and I told him it was because I was traveling with Holly Stevens, and he said, you and girls, it's always girls, go see Morrissey, <laughs> and I finally got to see a Smith. In September, it was uh, Andy Rourke, who's the bass player for the Smiths, was here in Halifax. He was doing a DJ thing on a Smiths tribute night. And so I emailed Matt and I said, I finally get to see a Smith. And he emailed me back and he said, Morrissey. And I emailed him and I said, no, Andy Rourke. And he said, well, he's not one of the important ones. He was just a bass player. (laughs) There you go. Just out of curiosity, did Matt play any musical instruments? Not well. No, I don't. No, I don't think so. I never actually. So I, I can't imagine that he would. He was not the most coordinated of people. You know, throwing a football or playing a guitar would be two things that I think probably have been beyond him. Um, but he was a true fan. You know, he, he really got it, uh, which was great. Hmm. I never did much about throwing footballs. I'll tell you. Yes. Well. He'd probably throw a guitar and try and play a football. So. Okay, well, that's it. Well, maybe he can do what the Who did. You know, they'd smash the guitars. We have Mac be the guitar smasher at the end of the session. Yeah, he might go for that. He's a big no. Portishead yes. fan, too. He liked intelligent bands. You know, the Smiths, Portishead, Radiohead, R.E.M. Um, and the truth is, although he probably never told Nick, he kind of liked the Ramones, too. Well, you can't not like the Ramones if you like any kind of rock and roll. I mean, you know, come on. There, there, there is something, what was the old Ramones line, you know, stick around if you don't like this song, there's another one coming in just a few minutes. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly the same. Well, that's why if you love one song, you love them all, so. That's yeah. right. That's yeah, right. the same. <laughs> Let's maybe look, because this is theoretically a paranormal show, about some of the ideas that Mac came up with because we've covered them basically peripherally so far. Of course, we've had Mac on the show a few times to talk about them in more detail. But let's go back to some of that stuff because Mac was looking into areas other than the common ETH thing. And the last time he was on the show, we had a show where he actually talked with a Mars researcher, a guy who wrote a book about Mars, and we discussed that. But the last time we discussed anything related to our field of interest here, it was about crypto-terrestrials. So, Patrick, since you're the publisher, maybe you give us a few ideas of what this book was saying. Well, as the publisher, I may know less about it than anybody else, actually, because I was trying to let Mac finish a, you know, a draft on his own without my help. 
Uh, Mac was excellent in writing shorter pieces, but he had problems with structure and putting longer pieces together. And I was encouraging him to at least, you know, try to put it together and we'll work on it when I see it. And I had not seen it. And I still, even though I was sent a, a draft uh, a couple of days ago, I have not read the draft other than his introduction, which is excellent. But maybe we'll go to one of the other gentlemen who talked to Mac about this. Nick, mm. certainly you discussed a lot of these things with him. What was your sense of what he was trying to say about UFOs? Well, rather ironically, um, I actually interviewed Mac about his book. I've got a, this genuinely isn't a plug. It's, I'm just explaining that the the timeline is what happened. I had a book coming out in December called Contactees, which is a study of the whole contactee movement. And in a passing conversation with Mac, he wondered if some of the so-called space brothers from the 50s, because they looked, allegedly at least, looked so human, could have been classic crypto-terrestrials. So I interviewed him for the book, and rather ironically, um, he died the or he was found, I should say, the day before the book was going to go to print. And when I happened to mention it to the publisher, they were agreeable, very fortunately, to hold off on the book so I could put a little um, acknowledgement, you know, a memorial statement for Mac at the beginning of the book. And I literally just had one day to do that. But one of the interesting things that I got from Mac was the idea that, in some respects, these crypto-terrestrials that he was looking for, if you like, were, were kind of ominous creatures, beings, if you like, sort of lurking in the shadows and, you know, the darker areas. And, you know, we even had a conversation once about them possibly living in you know, underground, in, you know, ruined um, subway stations and things like that. And it was sort of like a creepy, almost gothic scenario of this impoverished race of people on its last legs, desperately trying to convince us that they were highly technologically advanced and almost like using their few last remaining vehicles as shows of force to say, hey, look, you know, we're way advanced in front of you. In reality, they were just, you know, pitiful creatures stumbling around trying to survive. And, and it was sort of a weirdly strange and surreal, and in some respects, for reasons I can't necessarily explain, almost like an unsettling, creepy scenario that he was presenting. I don't certainly know how that's played out into the finished book, but I, I certainly know from speaking to him in the early days that, that that's how he viewed it, that these were sort of shadowy, manipulative figures that, you know, were just a, beyond our peripheral, if you like. Would they be then maybe creatures that lived on this planet for a long time, maybe a dying civilization that had undergone yeah. various, how we say, catastrophic events over the centuries, over the thousands of years they might have existed, and this was what was left of them. It almost sounds like Richard Shaver's Deros and Tiros, and everybody's going to say, nah, nah, can't be, but it kind of has the same rhythm to it. Yeah, that's actually what Mac did tell me. He felt it was like a, I guess, a race of, of highly advanced beings that may well have influenced some of our older legends, tales, mythologies, etc. It was waning, basically, and he felt that that might explain the the so-called alien abduction stories of DNA extractions. He just really couldn't believe that civilizations from far-off galaxies would, number one, be compatible with us to where our DNA was useful, and number two, that they would repeatedly come back and keep doing it when, you know, the far easier ways to extract DNA with 
and you know not to keep doing it time after time for countless centuries possibly unless you know they actually were related directly to us and there was a viable reason for doing this and he did he did actually say he felt that um you know there was a possibility that these things were um from the planet he actually had a really interesting theory we had a debate once about my body snatches in the desert book the idea that um you know this was a terrestrial accident and mac came up with a theory and again i don't know if he even mentioned this in the book but the idea that perhaps some sort of advanced balloon did come down at roswell but it may have been an advanced balloon type vehicle of the crypto terrestrials and because in my book um, I talk about how there was a, an alleged link, at least, between some of the bodies found at Roswell and the rare condition known as progeria, which is like a, in simplistic terms, like a rapid aging disease where the sufferers have large, uh, enlarged bald heads and small, frail bodies. And that actually wondered if the cryptoterrestrials could, in some respects, be afflicted by progeria, uh, or at least some of them. Hence, you know, this small frame, large head scenario. So he was actually digging into some really interesting, thought-provoking areas as well. Well, maybe that's more we can explore here. Did he talk to you, Greg, much about this particular idea? Yeah, we talked about that idea, but, you know, like I said, um, we were talking about writing something together. He was also incorporating um, the idea that whatever this entity, entities, force, non-human thing was, um, whether they'd been here for a long time or not, um, we discussed the idea that they had some sort of dominion over time and causality and things like that, which would make it appear, you know, sort of magic to us and that maybe they didn't even exist anymore as a physical species, um, but were intimately connected to us mentally or philosophically or emotionally or something like that, because that's a heavy component of the... Uh, the UFO scenario, especially the, the contact scenario, not contactees, but, you know, beings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a, a you know, the, he influenced my thinking quite a bit in that way because I don't really think about any physical beings. And he forced me through the force of his intellect and our conversations to consider the fact that, you know, there's, there's a definite physical, physical component. And, you know, how do we... Um, Justify that. How do we reconcile that with what's reported and um, the whole history of the subject? It's it's um, it's it, it. You know, Crypto Terrestrial's book is not just going to be, as far as I know, from when I talked to him about it, um, just the story of a possible race that shares the planet with us. Um, it goes much deeper than that, and and takes those ideas that uh, people like Valet and Keel had in the '60s, maybe a little bit of a few other thinkers, Greg Little, and runs with those and goes into areas that people really haven't considered before. And that's why I'm really excited and happy that it's going to actually come out, and that um, Patrick is waiting for that manuscript because I, uh, I told Mac, I said, can I please write an introduction to it? He said, Oh, Nick already asked. Like, oh, great, okay. <laughs> Can I still write an introduction to it? And he said, yeah, sure, as long as Patrick says okay. And, of course, Patrick said, great, fine. And the reason I asked him that was because in five months, in a year, in 10 years, in 20 years, especially far down the road here, people are going to say, somebody wrote this, already wrote about this, somebody was thinking about this then. I can't believe it. Why hasn't this gotten more publicity? And I hope 
that it gets more publicity than I think it will, and it catches on as a meme in in, in um, amongst the public, you know, outside of the UFO thing, because I think a changing of the mind about what we think about these paranormal things, especially about UFOs and aliens, is going to have a direct effect on our understanding of it and and some sort of possible solution to it. And I think Max Book is going to go a lot. You know, very, very far towards pushing that. Um, at least I hope it is. That's, now, that's my prediction. Now, uh, one of the things that I think I heard Mac mention on an interview uh, that you had recorded, Greg, was that he didn't claim to coin the term crypto terrestrial, correct? No, he didn't. He said a guy named Mr. X E C K S had mentioned it on his blog, and that's the first he'd heard of it. Uh, mm-hmm. That guy also comments on UFO Mystic once in a while. But yeah, Mac, Mac said this is not, you know, that. Not my idea, and and the, actually, the you know the original germ of the idea wasn't his idea. He he, right. he acknowledged that readily, but what he didn't acknowledge was that, like I just said, it's the way he looked at the um, the, the uh, alien contact thing and what he's going to do with it in this book is, I think, it's going to be so unique that it's going to blow people away. Can I ask you a question, Greg? Sure. Uh, do you think he actually believed this, or was it an exercise on his part, or was it an exercise that he ended up believing finally? I think because of because I got along so well with him, you know, in our in our discussions, from the standpoint of did he believe it? I think he thought, thought a way about the way about it that I do. I believe it as long as it's useful as a discussion point. You know what I mean? I don't wholly believe it. Like, I'm going to go out and preach this and that this is what is. Because, like Nick said, the U in in UFOs unidentified. So if you try and tie it down to something, even if it's something that, you know, you can't really prove yet, you're already already choking off all the possibilities and maybe part of the answer. So to answer your question directly, no, I don't think he believed it in the way that, People will hold on to a belief and use it to inform everything else that they, you know, talk about. So, in this sense, then he would be expressing this as a possibility, maybe an intellectual exercise or something more. Yeah, an intellectual exercise and something more. And and because of that, and that's what I said about changing people's minds. That an intellectual exercise about this kind of stuff is useful and helpful, and that's what we need because people are stuck in the nuts and bolts. Well, it's people from other planets, so let's look at it from that angle and just find the evidence for it. No, what you look for, what you expect, and I'm sure Mac would say the same thing because I talked to him about this, what you look for and expect, especially in the UFO and paranormal area, is a great part of what you're going to find and that you're already shutting yourself off if you don't keep your mind open. I, I can tell you he definitely didn't believe it in the sense that he thought it was the answer, even a correct answer. Um, he was open-minded to everything, including the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He never predicted that. He he said, oh, it's a perfectly valid hypothesis. It's another reason why we all got along so well. None of us, Nick, Greg, me, Mac, we don't reject the ETH. It's, we just... Don't say it's the answer or it's a proven answer. And so we, you know, you continue to look at other things. Matt took a lot of flack from some of the online ETH UFO researchers over the last couple of years. Um, for the, for they, you know, would just dismiss it out of hand. I'm, I like Jerry Clark. I really do. But Jerry literally dismissed it out of hand and said, you know, we've heard this same crap 
back in the 40s and 50s. Well, you know what's interesting about Jerry Clark, too, you see? At some point in the 60s and 70s, he embraced the possibility of other explanations rather than just ETH. Now, we say just ETH like that's a perfectly normal kind of explanation, but certainly it's a lot more involved than that. But he kind of embraced that, and then as he grew older, he kind of moves back into the ETH camp. So yeah. there was a period there where you might have put him in the same room with Mac Tonys and found them in agreement on a lot of subjects. We're going to have another hour of this discussion, and we're featuring this week some of the people who knew Mac Tonys well. Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, Patrick Weege, Paul Kimball, more on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, neighbors. The old way to meet for business is over the phone or in person. The new better way is to meet clients and colleagues online with GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is like meeting in person, but less time-consuming and less expensive. Start your meeting with just a click. Everyone can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so they can follow along as you move from page to page. You can use GoToMeeting to host a sales presentation, a product demo, or a training session. Even collaborate on documents by sharing your screens. Our listeners can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. That's a month of unlimited online meetings free. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. This special episode of the Paracast is being brought to you with limited commercial interruptions by Namecheap. To learn more, visit radio.namecheap.com. And by GoToMeeting, to learn more about them, visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcast. And we've been featuring Greg Bishop, Nicholas Redfern, Patrick Weege, and Paul Kimball, remembering the late Mac Tonys, someone who called himself an author, a futurist, and Fortean, although a lot of the topics could be applied to him, fiction writer, also artist. And I noticed there was some very interesting, I guess we call it cartoon art of aliens that Mac had created himself. Anyone want to speak to that? Yeah, he doodled constantly. I mean, like, he was a good artist. He had a, he's kind of a sort of Robert Crumb kind of thing, um, style. He was always drawing, his, his hands were always moving, and I think that's because his mind was always moving. Um, he never, in, in all the time I sort of spent with him, even, you can tell, it's like the squirrels up there never took the, I always have this picture of in everybody's head, there's a couple of squirrels with a wheel. <laughs> For most people, the squirrels don't do a whole lot of work. They just kind of sit around and get fat eating nuts. But Mac, his squirrels were always running. You know, that wheel was always spinning. And that manifested itself in him always sort of, 
doodling, writing. Patrick's quite right in the sense that Mac was really good at writing short things, include you know paragraph type stuff. He could say in a, one of the hardest things to do is to write a short story or to write a short film script. Um, not for Mac. Mac was actually better, I think, at this stage in his career, writing short things. And it, he was working and struggling to become a better, to piece it all together, to find, because his mind was always moving. And sometimes, you know, you step, step back and focus, as Patrick was saying, on one thing or two things. Um, and that's, but he was moving in that direction. He was getting better at that. He was refining his craft. But these do, these drawings you talked about, they, that's symptomatic of that, that he was always thinking, he was always looking for um, slices of life that he could record, whether it was um, by writing or drawing, or frankly, I'm not a Twitter fan. You guys were talking about Twitter earlier. I think yeah. people. But even on Twitter, that was his way. It was part of what he did. You know, he'd be sitting there and he might Twitter in coffee shop, um, fat person next to me or something. I don't know, whatever. He, I never read his Twitters. But that's, again, part of part and parcel of the way his mind worked. And I'm sure to do the Twitter, it took him like five seconds. Uh, you know, people think I'm on Facebook 24-7. I, it takes you five minutes a day to post a YouTube video and a couple pithy quotes. So you're doing a whole bunch of other things. I think the Twitter thing for him was just one more of those things. Mind always moving, saw something that interests him, um, and off you go. Nick, Nick had this catch. I didn't even know Mac had this blog. He had a, another blog, which, um, let me call the title up here. It's, uh, things that look like flying saucers. Oh, yeah. And what he did, I didn't know he had this until I sort of mentioned it to me or whatever. Uh, he took photographs of things that look like flying saucers, one or two, which look exactly like Billy Myers' flying saucers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, he, he's just, he was always taking photos, he's always doing something, and that's what made him so attractive a person to be around, is the squirrels never stopped running up there. And uh, those are the kind of people, I mean, that's why Greg and Nick and I uh, all get along so well with them. Because our squirrels never stop running either. Well, not only was he a really decent doodler, I mean, he definitely had that uh, that artistic uh, spark there, but I think he was also a really decent photographer. I mean, you know, you mentioned that blog, Things That Look Like UFOs, and I think a lot of that was stuff that he shot, but uh, one of my favorite things of his on his blog were just these little pieces of found uh, compositions he'd find in the street and he'd shoot with a camera. He was a... Yeah, it, it, it's kind of like when you're a creative person along those lines, um, that creativity spills out in so many different directions. And uh, I thought that as a photographer, he was very skilled. He was very capable. And I was that was another part of his blog I, I tremendously enjoyed. I also want to point out, um, because we were talking about his artwork, that um, a friend of our shows, someone who's become a friend of mine, is this guy Mike Cleland. Uh, this artist who, um, if you look over at uh, Post Human Blues, over on the, the sidebar on the column on the right, there's a section of friends. And uh, I, I'm, I'm proud, Gene, to say that we are, you know, our, our, our logo for the show is in there in his group of friends. And, and I'm thrilled about that. I was actually really happy about that the very first time you ever put it up there. Um, it made me feel really good. But then if you look, there's another one. Um, art is serious, and it's a self-portrait uh, of Mike Cleland. And, and actually, I've been considering asking Mike to come on the show because Mike, on his blog, has posted about uh, some of his conversations with Mac. And, and actually, Mike had sent me an email um, when this all went down saying, I can't believe 
Mac is gone, he literally helped me keep my sanity together. And apparently uh, Mike and, and Mac had been talking on the phone quite a bit and corresponding quite a bit. And uh, I guess Mac was a big fan of Mike's artwork because in, in some ways it, it kind of mirrored the kind of stuff that uh, that Mac would doodle. But yeah. You know, yeah, as it happens, it turns out that uh, Mac had spoken to Mike about possibly doing some illustrations for the Crypto Terrestrials book, oh, really? and I've been in, I've been in touch with uh, with Mike about that possibility. I think that would be fabulous, Patrick. I think you should definitely take uh, take him up on that because um, you know I know that that Mike quite literally loved Mac, and I think that uh, you know he he would go out of his way to do stellar work. He's a He's a fantastic illustrator. Mm -hmm. He has a r real great, strong style and just very talented. And I know that um, uh, uh, Max passing to Mike was just totally devastating. It yes, really it was. Yeah. Up, you know. One so, of the uh, sorry. One of the things I wanted to mention, David, just before I forget, because we were talking about the crypto terrestrials um, before. Um, one of the things that Mac uh, and I talked about a lot, and one of the things that really started making him think about um, something that shared the planet with us was the work of Robert Hastings and others who have documented the uh, the number of UFO incidents that have occurred around nuclear sites. Mm -hmm. And Mac was really puzzled intellectually by saying, well, okay, why would aliens from Zeta Reticuli give a rat's behind about whether we blow ourselves up or not? And right. never bought into this sort of contacty thing about the Space Brothers who, or, or if we use nuclear weapons, it would somehow create a ripple in the universe that would destroy everything. He said he just couldn't understand that, but he was fascinated by, as, as I am, I think as any good researcher should be, by the number of cases around nuclear sites. And he said, well, the lo most logical explanation to him was that it would be something we shared the planet with who would have a vested interest that if you started dropping bombs all across the planet, they would go as well as us. And and as I recall, and we were talking about this back when we were driving around in 2006, that was the first thing that really got him thinking about something that shared the planet with us, whatever that might be. And it was these, these nuclear incidents. So he was really, the the time I've seen him most excited in any UFO thing was, I I flew out there because I just like hanging out with my friends, and that's what a contingency is for in a film budget. Mm -hmm. We interviewed him in Kansas City. I just flew him out to. Um, we went on to uh, my camera guy, and I went on to Dallas to do some filming. Then we flew Mac out. He met us in L.A. and he got to meet Bob Salas from the Malmstrom missile base case because Bob was one of the guys I was in L.A. to um, to interview. And he was just, he just sat there and as Salas was telling the story, he was just fascinated by it. And the whole drive, cause Bob lives up in Ohio, you know, it's about a, I guess an hour drive back to LA. Right. And Finley, my camera guy, guy and I couldn't get a word in edgewise because all Mac could talk about was how this made so much sense to him that these nuclear cases that, that it had to be something from our own planet or that that made the most sense and um, yeah, no, he and Bob Salas thought he was a great guy too he, but he just sat there and listened to Bob tell his story and he was just blown away by it and you know, that's the kind of thing Mac was all, he just wanted to meet people like that and hear their stories and then see if it, how, how does it make sense? Like if this actually did happen, then what's the most logical explanation you can come up with? And you that's know, the mind worked. Th there was a conversation I was desperate to have with Mac, and uh, in the last couple of months, we've been going back and forth with Mac about when he was coming on the show next time, and he had actually said, he had sent an email to Gene and myself that 
the minute the uh, Crypto Terrestrial book was was finished and delivered, we were going to get that first interview. Um, and it just kills me. It just hurts me that that's not going to happen now. But um, something that I really wanted to talk with him about was this email that one of our listeners sent me recently, uh, which got me off in a tangent of thinking that I know, I just know Mac would have appreciated this one um, listener of the show who wrote to me and said, you know, I, I'm 51 years old. I've been thinking about this stuff all of my life. And he said, you know, all of these stories about reptilians, which he generally kind of dismiss um, this, this listener of the show, he said, you know, what, and he asked me, he's like, what do you think about this idea of mine that when the dinosaurs went extinct, whatever a, a celestial event it was that, you know, potentially threw the planet into nuclear winter, maybe there was some branch of reptiles that were further div further advanced than the rest of the dinosaurs that went underground in order to escape the nuclear winter and basically had that many more millions of years to evolve underneath of the planet. And, he, and, he, and, and this guy wrote to me saying, you know, maybe this is the source of all this reptilian stuff, maybe underneath of the, of the wackiness, this kind of the David Icke uh, uh, kookiness, Maybe there's a real hardcore truth there that there was this uh, a species that developed underground. And, you know, in thinking about it, I thought, you know, you talk about these gray alien beings with the big black eyes. And I thought, you know, physiologically, what of what use would big black eyes be? Well, if, you know, if you've got a, a, a species living underground where there's, uh, you know, minimal sunlight, Seems to me like big black eyes at that point, you could make an, evol an evolutionary based uh, physiological reason for them having that. And then also the idea of geothermal power underneath of the surface of the planet being a totally usable power source to develop a technological civilization that would A, very much want to be uh, essentially stealth, wouldn't want to necessarily... Uh, uh, you know, be known to the creature's surface side, and then also at the same time potentially have a vested interest in the genetic evolution game surface side. I thought all of that makes so much sense, and it you know it sort of taps right into what Mac was was I think thinking about, and I so wanted to have that conversation with him, and, and it just it hurts me so much that that I can't have that conversation with him now. Let me ask Nicholas something. You're doing this book on. The contactees. Now, it's very common in the early contactee movement where the aliens, quote, unquote, would come here and say, hey, you've got to get your act together because you're going to destroy the environment. You're going to use nuclear weapons and all that. And again, it's the same thing. These messages are being conveyed. But the fact is that how would they be affected? It's not going to upset the galactic neighborhood. It's going to upset this planet. Why would the aliens care unless it they were here? Yeah, yeah, they were here. They were part of it. Yeah. What do you think, Nicholas? Well, I actually agree with you on that. I think the one thing having sort of delved me very deeply for a few years into the contactee realm is that, you know, a lot of people this the subject just literally out of hand. If you look at it and you look at the background of some of the people involved and some of the more esoteric connections that they had and things like this, what 
what I found is that there was a great deal of deception and manipulation of people involved. I think, you know, a lot of people, as I said, dismiss the subject completely out of hand and say quite reasonably, well, you know, these people were just hoaxes and there's no need to take it to any further, more significant level. Having delved into the subject for a very long time, I think certain cases at least do fall into, I guess, like a different category where there seems to be deep parallels between the contactee encounters and other reports of um, experiences and encounters with advanced and higher beings in the past, um, you know, parallels with people like Joseph Smith having, you know, this angel Moroni presenting with the so-called golden plates. You know, it has massive um, contactee overtones to it. And, you know, I think for this reason, from my own perspective, there are clear indications of manipulation and deception at work. And I think that's one of the reasons why this has led to the whole dismissal of the subject and why it's been uh, presented as ridiculous, because the stories were ridiculous. But if you look at at least some of them in the light of deception, that may well explain uh, some of the inconsistencies and the absurd nature of the stories. It was a Max view that uh, he presented to me when I interviewed him was that possibly this was done deliberately to actually deceive people as to their real origins, you know, which may well have been, as he thought, possibly deep below us. Well, it makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels, doesn't it? I mean, what well, Mac was what Mac was doing was trying to to take the evidence and follow where the evidence was leading, instead of starting out with some sort of a, a presupposition and fitting the evidence to that presupposition. Yeah, I mean, I would stress it does make sense and in relation to what Patrick said about whether or Mac actually believed it. My my sense was that he, he looked at the contactee angle because it kind of fitted in with his belief systems as to how they might deceive us. And I think it wasn't a case that he 100% believed it was the, the ultimate scenario. I think he came to realize that it was a valid one worth investigating and that there were aspects to this scenario, if you like, that fitted in very well with, to explain the inconsistencies in the ETH scenario. And having said that, um, again, I, I would, and, and as Nick would know, um, I would stress that he, he never ruled the ETH out, but what he no. would do, and this tied into a lot of his, his thinking and work on post-humanism, which is um, generally people sort of think of that as separate. Um, but the reason why I asked him to speak about that back in 2006 at the uh, New Frontier Symposium is because I think it's related. And he would often say, look, we're moving um, so fast, so far forward, that who knows what, as a species, we will look like in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, at what point do we sort of meld with computers and do we become cyborgs and all that sort of stuff? And he would take that into the UFO stuff and he would say, well, look, maybe some form of extraterrestrial intelligence is visiting planet Earth. But he was always very clear, using his own thinking, using you know that sort of mirroring our own development, that what, what it would be would not be flesh and blood aliens from Zeta Reticuli, but it would be machine intelligence. That any um, civilization that had advanced to the point where they could conquer space and fly between the stars, we would be dealing with probes or machine intelligence or something like that. And I always found... AI, for lack of a better word, and I always found that to be the most compelling sort of thought I, uh, about the ETH is that we wouldn't be dealing with um, 
UFO nods, if you will, like kind of Star Trek, Captain Kirk beaming down to our planet. But what we would be dealing with would be um, what some alien race might be dealing with us if we get there in two or three hundred years, you know, something that we wouldn't recognize today. And so he was always, that was a nice thing about Mac, he would meld all sorts of different things. And at the same table where you could sit down and talk to him about the crypto terrestrials, ten minutes later he could start talking about artificial intelligence and how that might explain any number of aspects of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, including their seeming lack of emotion and all that sort of stuff, um, at least during in the narratives of people like Whitley Strieber and things like that. Well, let me ask you a question about that, Paul, because the fact that, uh, you know, Mac basically said that he was interested in post-humanism and transhumanism, and, and I'm wondering, of course, you know, what is the functional difference between those? Was Mac the kind of person, do you think, that given the opportunity, I know that he had said on his blog that, um, I guess there was this idea about this, uh, uh, somebody had a theory about sending humans to Mars on a, on a journey where they couldn't come back, and, and Mac was one of those people that felt that he would absolutely have volunteered for such a trip um, to go to Mars and know that he was not coming back. Do you think Mac was the kind of person that ultimately was transhumanist enough where if he could have essentially transplanted his mind, his soul into some sort of a cybernetics device, he would have ultimately divorced his physical body and done that? Yes, without hesitation. I mean, he might have hesitated for a little, but absolutely. You know, I talked about that. It's one of the few things we ever really disagreed on. Really? Um, I, I would not. Uh, I'm happy to live my life and die and, you know, move on. Um, but he, he was fascinated by it. Um, and we used, I used to joke, I used to say, um, what if you could create your own artificial world, Mac, and um, sort of populate it with people that you like? And he said, <laughs> I would have a planet full of six billion Jessica Albas. Uh, because he was obsessed with Jessica Alba and <laughs> Natalie Portman. So, you know, it'd be like six billion Jessica Albas, and that's the only thing we have. Well, now, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on a second. Because, you know, she's a pretty girl, but you get the feeling that Jessica Alba is not exactly the the, the sharpest pencil in the box. I mean, are that's you trying to tell me that? Right. Seriously, you're trying to say that, that he was looking? No, he said, I don't want to believe that. Really? Go back and check his blog from a couple of years ago. I mean, oh. you might have moved out beyond Jessica Alba, but every now and then on my blog, I'd put a Jessica Alba picture up just to tease and taunt him. Um, you know, uh, yeah, no, he's a huge fan of Jessica Alba, and I, I don't think he was a huge fan of, his, of her, her film work, such as it is. You know, oh, she was great in Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Um, <laughs> Oscar worthy, her and Kate Winslet, those are the two. Maybe he uh, liked the outfit she wore in Fantastic Four, and that's all. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I, mean, he was, I think he was really attracted to the four on her chest, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, no, he he said, look, I it would be he was he was he never get into Second Life that I knew of, which is which is weird because Second Life, a lot of people look at it as the very first kind of portal into that virtual world. That in 200 years, when we all live in computers, uh, we'll look back on Second Life like Atari Pong or something. Mm. And um, and he never get into that. Uh, but he, he would always consistently say, yeah, sure, it would just be like another sort of a, a journey, another adventure. And so, yeah, he was, he was pretty keen on that. He, he caused Jaws to drop, too, at my New Frontier Symposium amongst the 50 people in the audience. Um, when he, he started off his lecture by basically saying, what gives us the right to survive as a species? You know, in the current form or any form. 
And then he proceeded to sort of give an hour and a half of reasons why we probably shouldn't. And then at the end he said, but, you know, <laughs> I'm hopeful that we will. Um, but we should be prepared to evolve. That was his final line. We should be prepared to evolve into whatever our next stage is. We shouldn't just be satisfied to be stuck here, whatever that means. And um, I, that's where he and I would part ways because I'm happy to be stuck here with my squirrels in my head. But he was willing to move on. And, yeah, that that made him interesting, too. Fascinating guy. Do you know why he was he never tried Second Life? No, I never asked him about it, actually. We Mutual Will Wise, who's now uh, Rebecca uh, Wise, um, spoke at the the uh, New Frontier Symposium. He she became a huge Second Life devotee, and they uh, he she was a he when when she was speaking here, and um, and she talked to Mac briefly about it, and he he just didn't. I think he he sort of thought Max thing would have been, look, in Second Life, I'm just going to be dealing with the same stupid people that I'm dealing with here. Whereas if I can download myself into a computer matrix, I'll just be dealing with six billion Jessica Albas that I can program however I want. And I, th I think he would have preferred a world where at least he could pick and choose the people that he would. He would have been more of an exclusive Second Life kind of thing um, if he could have controlled who he was dealing with. But I don't think the, the thing about Second Life that I don't think he liked was the fact that it was basically just like First Life. <laughs> I mean, right. More, more humans. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just people pretending to be somebody else. And right. I, he didn't that part. He didn't like what he did like was the idea of actually being somebody else going in into a different world and being in a different world and trying that. And, uh, yeah, so that's the difference that he saw, as I understood it, between Second Life and, you know, the actual post-human world of maybe living in a computer matrix someday. And he, he would talk. He, he and Peter Gersten were quite friendly. And Gersten is, uh, what the, I don't know how much you know about Peter, former director of Citizens um, um, Against UFO Secrecy or um, Cause, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, right. And... Um, Gersten sort of believes, and I interviewed him in Arizona. Mac went out to Sedona and actually met him, too. Um, Gersten believes that we all live in this holographic matrix, and 2012 it's going to end and all that sort of stuff. And Mac's fascinated by that idea. You know, you know what's interesting about Peter Gersten, just parenthetically, he is listed in, I guess, the Hall of Shame at UFO Watchdog. So when we made an effort to get him on the show, it wouldn't happen. Now, I know Peter Gersten for a number of years. We used to have lunch periodically when he'd visit Phoenix. <laughs> but not after we became friendly with Royce Myers and <laughs> UFOWatchdog.com, then that ended. Well, Peter's a fascinating guy, and he's a great guy to sit down and talk with. None of, you know, I don't I don't buy what Gersten um, is, he's not selling, but you know what I mean. But Mac, again, open-minded. He, he was always willing to sit down and listen to those things. And um, and Gersten was one of those people that he sort of sat down and listened to and said, well, you know, maybe um, it's just another idea. By the way, uh, Peter and I go back to about 1979. <laughs> We've been friends since then. Yeah, he's a, he's a very nice guy, and he knows all the best Mexican restaurants in Sedona. So he's a wonderful guy to visit. <laughs> yeah, but he, he has this he has this idea that in 2012 he's going to jump off Bell Rock. And um, the, as I recall, I interviewed him. I, some of the videos are up on YouTube. There's going to be a, you know, the vortex will be waiting to take him to the next level or something. Mm. And um, his girlfriend was sitting there, and I said, are you okay with this? How do your kids feel about the fact you're basically going to commit suicide in 20, December 2012? 
And, um, you know, he, he said, look, I'm not asking anyone else to do it with me. It's not a cult. It's just me. This is my choice. And that's when I think, as he would put it, that's when my program will end. And right. I think Mac found that fascinating because, you know, he would ask the question, well, wait a second. What if we are already living in a program? Maybe we are already posthuman. We just don't realize. And he, he, some of the, you can read some of that stuff on his blog. If you go back to the archives in his blog, he's written about stuff like that before. So, well, hopefully that, that blog will stay up there for a long time. And, and by the way, all of those things you just said about Gerson are the reasons that he will remain in the UFO Hall of Shame. <laughs> but it might be fun to interview him anyway. I mean, we don't have to have just people who are in the UFO Hall of Fame or in the Great Basket, do we? No, but he won't come on. So, but that's, look, that's, this is not a show about Peter Gerson. It's a show about Mac Tony's. So, just yeah, the I only I only mentioned Peter Gerson because Mac had uh, dealt with him, met him, um, and uh, and found some of the things that Gerson talked about to be um, thought-provoking, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, uh, Mac met so many people online, and uh, Peter Gerson is one of them. Uh, he met uh, my friend Rita J. King, who's a, a digital you know, genius who's doing all sorts of uh, incredible projects. He, he uh, met uh, Cliff Pickover, who's mm-hmm. written a lot of fascinating books about math and, and, and fairies and all sorts of things. Uh, he had a lot of connections with a lot of people. Yeah, one of the guys he got to meet, I know, and he was quite excited about was Leo Sprinkle um, in Wyoming, a f- friend of mine, fellow filmmaker here in uh, Halifax, Mike McDonald. I hooked him up with Mac. There's a television series up here called Supernatural Investigator, and they do one-offs. You know, this week it's ghosts, next week it's UFOs. And P- Mike was looking for the UFO guy, and he asked me to do it. I said, well, no, because I might be pitching the same thing to the network. That would be, you know, Mike, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the number of a guy, Mac Tonys. He should be on television every week. So any chance I got to plug Mac to a fellow producer is like, take that guy. And um, it's very hard in Canada because of our funding system to convince anyone to use an American when you could probably find a Canadian to do it for a lot of reasons. But Mike, I, I recommended Mac. He talked to, or I recommended Mac to Mike. Mike talked to Mac. They hit it off. And so he, he used him, went against the grain. And uh, Mac is in that episode. That's another thing. I, Americans haven't seen it because it hasn't aired, as far as I know, in the United States yet. But um, that's Mac again for a half hour, or, or is it an hour? I think it's a half hour. Supernatural investigator Mac Tonys goes looking for UFOs. So he went down to SETI. I think he met Seth Strostack. Um, Slee Stack, as Greg would call him. And um, <laughs> for anyone who knows Land of the Lost. And, uh, but he, but, um, and Mac found Showstack underwhelming, but Leo Sprinkle, he got to meet Leo Sprinkle. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was something else, you know, like he just, he met a lot of people and he was just fascinated to meet different people with different ideas. Plus he was just really approachable. I mean, yeah. I know that uh, personally I rub a lot of people the wrong way for, what, no. for whatever reasons. No, that's fine. I'm kind of used to it at this point. Um, uh, where Mac was the kind of person, I never met him. I spoke to him on the phone a number of times. I never met him. You know, we spoke with him on the show. Uh, we spoke on the phone a, a few times, uh, more than a few times actually. And Mac was one of those people who, um, I, I found had a tremendous amount of, even though, you know, you're saying he suffered from depression, uh, he, he had a real sense of balance to him. Um, he had, uh, you know, he had one of those voices that, 
you just tended to find very soothing. And that was something about him that I think that uh, Mike Cleland in, in the friendship he struck up with Mac over the phone, I think that's what he found was that, you know, Mac, maybe Mac should have been a, a psychotherapist ultimately. I mean, he, he just had this way of putting you at ease. Um, and I think with a lot of people, I mean, Mac, like, like my, my father may rest in peace was the kind of guy who just didn't have a lot of like enemies. You know, he, 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 there weren't a lot of people that had very strong negative feelings about him. There was one, um, I forget who it was. There was one of the, uh, online bloggers that uh, wrote a little piece about Mac. And I guess that he had had a number of disagreements with Mac, but yet wrote a piece about him, a tribute piece that was actually very complimentary. Yeah. George Dvorsky. He's That's a it. transhumanist, uh, lives in Toronto. And um, so he and Mac shared an interest in transhumanism, but Dvorsky um, thinks the UFO thing is completely bonkers, and anyone mm-hmm. associated with it is cuckoo. And so they they had some, you know, pretty for Mac, pretty firm disagreements online. But they, you know, they were friendly. That's just Mac. He could disagree with somebody vehemently, and then you know say, oh, you know, it's not personal though, and he meant it. It really wasn't personal. I really envy him for that. You know, that kind of balance is one that I know I'll never have in my life. So uh, it's another reason to admire the man. Let's maybe move, because we are into our last half hour here, into some other aspects of his life and his expectations. Now, in addition to UFOs, where we kind of know that he was exploring just about anything, what other paranormal subjects was he involved with? Anyone? Well... I mean, I think Paul kind of hit the nail on the head, you know, with the whole post-human thing. Um, I'm not really, you know, it's interesting. I never really had any conversations with Mac, I don't think, although we had a lot of 14-based conversations. We didn't ever really delve into things like life after death to any great extent or cryptozoology, that sort of thing. It really did sort of focus around science, technology, and uh, the whole, you know, the UFO phenomenon. I think Nick used the right word, though. I wouldn't call him a ufologist. I'd call him a Fordian. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. He was, UFOs was just an aspect of his thinking. I know he was interested in ghosts, at least from my work on the, the ghost series, but when he would become most interested would be when I would do something like start speculating on how maybe it's time travel. And then he'd go, well, I don't really care too much about ghosts, you know, like Casper, the ghost, the traditional ghost. But how, if this can somehow relate to a Fordian phenomenon or a scientific phenomenon, well, okay, then, then he was interested. And we had a number of conversations about how it could be time travel and how ghosts mm-hmm. could be from other dimensions and stuff. So, yeah, he was anything, any paranormal subject that could fit into what he was interested in, the way he would look at things from a Fordian view, uh, or from a technological scientific view, he was interested in. Um, I suspect he probably wasn't terribly interested in the Loch Ness monster. Um, <laughs> Cryptozoology not his uh, not his forte. Um, not well, not the Loch Ness monster, but I know he was interested in Bigfoot, to at least to the extent that he could converse intelligently about it, and somehow you know tie it into. Um, other Fordian phenomena, uh, and potentially, I, I haven't read his book. I'll be fascinated to see if Bigfoot gets a mention, because I know when it came to the crypto terrestrials, he, you know, Bigfoot was on the table. Maybe that was somehow related. Nick, you, you spoke to his parents. Um, what did they think about his interest in these topics? I mean, how did they feel about his fascination with this material? 
Well, yeah, I think certainly Max's mom, who was, I haven't spoke to his father, I spoke to Max's mom, and she was sort of very deeply appreciative of the fact that people had a high regard for Mac. Um, we didn't actually talk too much about his work. It really was the fact that, you know, he'd made a great impression on people as a person and as a researcher. And I think that sort of really hit home to her when she realized that people were putting information on the Internet in terms of, you know, for example, obituaries and things like that. And mm -hmm. basically just remembering him and recalling your funny stories and even, you know, right in the wake of his death, just, just literally amusing anecdotes. And I think she kind of realized that, you know, he'd, he'd left this mark and, you know, which in amidst all the tragedy, that, that was a good thing. So, um, and just out of curiosity, does anybody know what his degree was in? Uh, I don't know. No. I thought it was a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, but I wouldn't bet my life on that. But it was something like that. All right. I'm going to actually try to get in touch with the Ottawa University and find out if I can get that information. I think that's something people would like to know. You know, just because... You know, when you when you're 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 looking at someone like this, who uh, many of us feel that his work, you know, impacted us so much, and yet, you know, ultimately, there's so much about the man we don't know. That's one of the things I was hoping would come out in this show would, would be anecdotes, stories about things that we other otherwise wouldn't hear about him. And I'm and I'm really that's why uh, you know Paul and and Nick. Um, you know, if you guys, any stories about him that you think we'd want to know about, even like silly stuff, I think people really appreciate that. Well, no, it's true, though. I mean, look, the day I go, uh, not that there's going to be a Paracast tribute episode, but man, you could find a lot of people who would tell a lot of really weird stories about me. I, I promise you that. I'm already getting the guest list, David. Don't say too much, okay? We're already ready for the David Biedney tribute episode. But, but no, seriously. I mean, what, what, you know, and, 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 uh, Greg had to leave a little early. Oh, there I went and said it. But, um, uh, Paul, Nick, Patrick, silly stories about Mac that we should know about. Anything. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm putting everybody on the spot here. I mean, you know, um, stuff. He liked coffee. Sure. Okay, I'll give you one, um, which will probably reflect. I don't know what this will reflect, but when he was here, um, I I sleep in the same bed that I've slept in for 40 years. It's it's not even a bed anymore. It's a hammock. It's because uh, the mattress is 30 years old too. It's, um, it's the bunk bed, the chair with my brother. So somewhere the other one's in a dump, but I kept mine. That's what I sleep on. So he was he was in my room. I was out sleeping on the hardwood floor in the living room. And but I, you know, I had to do work. And Mac, once he goes to sleep, he's hard to wake up. Like he's, he's, he's one of those. All right, all right. Yeah, no, he's just like you know, sort of gone until he chooses. He would choose to wake up. And my computer that I would do my work and all my email and stuff and my editing system is in my bedroom. So, I, you know, I have no choice. Ten o'clock in the morning rolls around, i got to check my email and stuff. So I wander in. And the other thing I realized, because he had the, it was November, he had, it's Canada, he had the blankets up. And actually, it kind of makes me, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of laughing as I do this. At the same time as I'm sort of peering up, but in laughter. I just remember sitting there and I was getting these emails and from behind me, I was trying so hard to be quiet, but from behind me, I heard, <laughs> looked around, and he shuffed the blankets off. He was still half asleep, and I realized he slept in the nude, which was just 
like I'm there going, Ugh, you think we're our, let me tell you something, ah, Mac, you're a crypto-terrestrial. Because he had, by that time, he'd started shaving his head, and he was pretty much totally bald. <laughs> I thought, I'm probably never going to see an alien, but this is as close as I'm going to get. And it was, it was one of the strangest, most surreal things that I ever seen. So I looked back to the computer, and he's kind of shaking his head, he's going, ah, oh, coffee, need coffee, oh, why am I so early? And I just couldn't help myself. I had to look back and I said, I just stared at him for about three or four seconds. And I said, you should probably put something on. But I got to tell you, it, you look great. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that's that's the weirdest Mac Tony story. Uh, just thinking about it sends shivers up my spine at the same time as I'm strangely turned on. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, are you trying to tell us something, Paul? Oh, um, no, no, not at all. I, I would live on a Jessica Alba planet too. But um, yeah, no, he was. That's the strangest, weirdest, sort of goofiest Mac story. I mean, there's a lot, but that's the one that sticks, sadly enough, in my mind. Is naked, bald bodied Mac Tony's getting up from my 30 year old or 40 year old hammock. <laughs> this was your alien visitor, Nicholas Redfern. Anything wacky, crazy, something yeah, about Yeah, one Mac? kind of funny thing. Like, well, I found it funny, I guess. Um, I guess as a freelance writer, you know, you, you go where the work is. And um, up to about a year or so ago, a year or so ago, I used to do a, a paid gig for which was like vaguely a. Vaguely pornographic side, put it like that. And I used to do paranormal stories for them. And so every so often I'd have to phone, do interviews with people, and make a funny story. Like a thousand, five hundred words, something like that. And so every, you know, couple of weeks I'd phone Mac and to get a quote, hey Mac, you know, I've got to do a story about alien sex, or I've got to do a story about robot sex. And he used to think it was hilarious. He'd, oh, you know, you phone up for another quote for that, for that site. And, <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd give me these sort of wacky, Quotes about how in the future, you know, we might be having sex with robots and we could build, you know, equivalents of 50-year-old Hollywood stars that would look and talk like the real thing. And uh, we just have these wacky conversations and I'd pull, you know, 50 or 100 words out of a 30-minute interview and the editors would love it. So. <laughs> Patrick. You're a publisher. Well, I guess nobody found that particularly funny as I did. Well, I'm, no, I'm, no. Laughing, at, I'm <laughs> laughing on the inside, Nick. Well, I have to tell you, basically here, understand something, that anytime I tell a joke on this show, David sends the bombs flying. Oh, I don't have to send bombs flying. You release your own uh, your own shrapnel. <laughs> Thank no you. I appreciated fire. that. No, it's okay. You know I love you. But Patrick, you're a publisher. Certainly, publishers always have wacky stories about their writers. Well, uh, you know, I never met Mac personally. I spoke to him a number of times on the phone, especially while we were doing the Mars book together. Uh, wacky stories. I mean, I think we appreciated uh, wacky events that occurred, uh, things that, you know, that we shared online and things like that. But I didn't have any wacky experiences with Mac personally. Uh, by the way, while you were talking before, I just looked it up online. He graduated from William Christen High School in 1994. Right. And he obtained his bachelor's degree at Ottawa University. But it doesn't right. say. Yeah, it doesn't say what it's in. No, yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, all right. So Patrick has no wacky stories. So I want to, I have a personal question. I asked this about, I remember when we did the tribute about John Keel. 
I ask this, and it, it provokes some interesting conversation. Um, the Paul and, and this is really directed at Paul and Nick. Uh, Max' personal relationships with, while you guys knew him, was he ever dating anybody? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He he actually lived with a um, a girl. Now let me get this straight. It was a girl. He lived with her for I think seven days, uh, which you know he. You sort of think of people, um, especially Mac, it's, it's, it's kind of people look at him and they don't, maybe didn't know him personally or whatever. So you see the writing and the art and you admire him and all this stuff. But he was a very human, post-human, uh, as it were, with all the mm -hmm. same foibles and interests and Randy side to him that the rest of us had. And you know, it was, he could be quite Randy. Um, nobody uses that term anymore. He could be right dirty there. That's what kids will understand, I guess, <laughs> for, for you young peeps out there in the Paracast audience. Um, and, yeah, I guess he, she was a dancer, and as I recall. And she, he lived with her for about six or seven days. They moved in, and that it just didn't go well. That's all that can be said. And so he would constantly just go, ugh. Like, every now and then, he'd see me hanging out with an actress or something. He'd say, no, no, date an accountant, Paul. Uh, <laughs> stay away from the creative side. <laughs> crazy. He was crazy. He'd just be like, she was crazy. And, you know, that's that kind of thing. So he he could go off on people in private. He would never do it publicly. And it usually was his personal life. Um, he had a love-hate relationship with Kansas City, for instance. Most of it was hate. But there was a small amount of love for a certain area called the plaza. But the rest of it was hate. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, when we first met him, we pulled into a, he said, don't park on the streets. You can't park in the streets in Kansas City. Your car will get stolen. It's <laughs> just like, okay. And he said, here, park in this parking lot. So we pulled into this underground parking lot, and we're getting out of the car, going out to have a coffee, and he just spits on somebody's car. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, and I said, what did you do that for? And he said, I don't know, they're from Missouri. And he just kept walking. And I thought, wow, okay, this is a guy that's got to move to San Francisco or New York. Oh, man, yeah, jeez. Now, now he always he always lived in that part of the country, right? Yes. And, uh, uh, he, yeah, he, he didn't really want to live there. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine who read his blog all the time thought he was actually living in San Francisco. So his head was somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. He used to, he's actually from Independence. He's not, um, although Independence might be part of the greater Kansas City metropolis now, but he was from Independence. And I asked him once, I said, well, you know, what was it like growing up in Independence? And Independence, and he said, well, it's the meth capital of the United States. Oh, jeez. Um, it's got the Truman Museum and it's the meth capital. And, um, you know, he loved his folks, and uh, but he, he wanted, there's no question he would have preferred to be in a place like New York or L.A. or San Francisco. I, I tried to get him to come up to Canada, one of my, our long-term plans at, at Red Star Films, and that I had talked to him about was, you know, to try and find him work as a writer up here. And um, because he would love Halifax. Halifax is kind of like a small San Francisco and a very artsy town. And that's the kind of town he belonged in. And I would often ask, I said, well, aren't there publications you can write for in Kansas City, you know, like arts journals and stuff? And he said, no. Um, you know, there was not, there was no outlet in his own town that he could mm. find for, his, for writing. So eventually, I'm pretty sure that he would have moved um, to to one of the coasts, you know, to get away right. from the West. There's nothing wrong with the Midwest. It just wasn't for Mac. Um, 
And he did actually spit on somebody's car. So that is, I think that is hysterical. Um, there was on his blog, I remember it would before the, I guess the last apartment he had, the previous apartment, he wrote some stuff on there where I thought he was going to end up getting arrested for like breaking down the neighbor's door and hurting them or something because they were making so much noise. Oh no, yeah, no, I remember that series that, yeah. Oh man. He, he could be fastidious about his own personal space. Um, he would, he would have been a difficult guy to live with, I can tell you that. Um, a rewarding person to live with, but it wouldn't have been an easy journey. Um, because he, again, he had his own idiosyncrasies and, uh, and he probably had more than most people actually. Um, he just managed to keep them out of the public eye, whereas guys like you and I, David, you know, it's on full display. But Mac, Mac managed to separate his personal idiosyncrasies from from his professional work, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, I believe he lived with some cats. He had some cats as pets. Is that correct? Yes, two, as I recall from the last time. One of which was he called EB, like extraterrestrial biological entity. EB one and EB two. Yeah, I, I can't remember what the other one was called, but. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he uh, did that as a sort of joke, a play on words for MJ12, actually. Um, and the whole—that's where I guess EBE first surfaced. So, yeah, he had a good sense of humor. That was another nice thing about him. What was his favorite? Some of his favorite media. Now, you know, we talked about uh, we talked about music and and the Smiths and radio. I'll, I'll forgive him the Smiths because he had Radiohead. But um, uh, uh, as far as like movies or writers, I mean. Uh, you know, I'm guessing that he really dug people like Burroughs, uh, but, right? Now, now, who were some of his other favorite writers? I'm just curious. If people want to try to get more into the mind of Mac Tonys to see what his, who his influences were, who should they be looking towards? Well, I don't know if it was so much one of his influences, but I know from speaking to him that he was very sort of passionate about the the culture of the sort of the 30s and the 40s pulp sci-fi era. And particularly, mm -hmm. you know, these fantastic painting style covers on these old magazines, you know. Oh, he loved those, yeah. The good looking girl and the threatening alien or UFO coming down. Um, and he, he loved, I remember talking to him on a number of occasions about those type of magazines and covers and that whole era that, you know, sort of rose and then I guess just moved on. Um, so I don't think that was necessarily an influence on his writing, but he, he appreciated that aspect of the of the written word and, you know, the image, so to speak. Did, did he have on his blog recently a number of uh, science fiction covers with uh, women in cubes? Yes, yes. Yes. That's right. Yes. It was a high point of the post-human blues history, yeah. That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Burroughs, he was a huge fan of Burroughs. When he and Greg and I did the Radio Mysterioso show three years ago, there's actually about a five- or six-minute segment in there where he and Greg talked about Burroughs. Um, Philip K. Dick, um, huge fan he of He met Dick. Burroughs. Did he? Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, he met Burroughs. Oh, wow, cool. Um, he was a huge fan of Dick. Um, oh, wait, let me rephrase. Uh, and, Phil uh, K. Yeah. Yes, quite. And I worry uh, about Paul. <laughs> yes, well, you should. Um, I saw him naked in my own bed. That's all I need to say. Ah, uh, stop it. And also, Ballard. I know that he he was a big fan of J.G. Ballard. 
Yep, and uh, and Kafka actually. Um, when I was in Prague back in June, I went out of my way to visit um, the Kafka Museum and the you know sort of Kafka statue and his old house and everything. And then I took pictures and sent them all to Mac and said, "Haha, see, now, you know, I haven't seen a Smith yet, but I have seen the following Kafka sort of things." And uh, he was just, "Ah, oh, I can't. I got to go to Prague." And uh, yeah, he was fascinated by Kafka, and a lot of his writing actually, and even some of his artwork, I think, was inspired by Kafka, and sort of the weirdness that was Kafka. <sighs> I'm hearing a dog back there. Is that, is that uh, your yeah, dog, Patrick? Yeah, that's my dog. Yes. Does your dog want to say something about Mac? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> Now, just out of curiosity, uh, one of my favorite Cronenberg films in terms of an adaptation was uh, his adaptation of Crash. Do you guys, uh, especially Paul and Nick, do you know that if he, if he appreciated uh, Cronenberg's uh, cinematic version of Crash? Yeah, he did. Um, and we we actually, it's funny you should mention that we talked about that once for a good two hours because I saw Crash four times in the theater, um, at least once just for the musical score. I just mm -hmm. found the score was amazing. Fascinating. And at least yeah. once just for Deborah Kara Unger, and the other two times because I liked the film. And yeah, no, he he had seen the film and uh, he he quite liked it. Yeah, I uh, thought it was. I think it, you know if he had to pick one of his favorite films, that would probably be on his list. Uh, really, he found it a fascinating film. I'll tell you another one that he and I saw together when he was up here we were doing um, doing time was The Mist of all things the science this sort of little science fiction film that came under the radar and nobody really heard about really? it really? yeah 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 do you like that? Yeah, he, well, we both did. He and I walked out and we just went, wow, that was so like, I mean, the special effects are a little dodgy and all that sort of stuff, but it, it didn't cop out at the end. That's the, We walked home and we were talking about, the great thing is, nobody was happy at the end. I mean, they really just, it, it, if you've seen the film, you don't know. It what was it about, for those who aren't familiar with the film? Which one was it? The Mist. 2000 and when did we run doing time? It was November of 2007. Um, Thomas Jane, I, I think, was the sort of leading man in it, um, and it's it's about this um, military sort of facility that is experimenting with um, you know contacting parallel universes or something like that, and they open a gate that allows all these horrible creatures to come through, and the creatures it's kind of like a Stephen King thing. The creatures um, beset this town. I think it was set in Maine, somewhere in New England. And it's a mist. This mist rolls in, and and it's really creepy. And and it, there's this break. That all these people get trapped in the supermarket. And you know, not only are they battling, it's kind of like a George Romero zombie film. Not only are they battling these evil or or deadly creatures out there, they're also battling their own human nature. And it was it was going along great and everything. And then at the end, and if you haven't seen the mist, I won't ruin it for you. There's just this. The ending blew up literally blew us away and we i was convinced that these people would survive like any hollywood film and uh, oh i just ruined the ending but i won't tell you how um and then it it's just an amazing ending and so we we spent the whole thing walking and i i kind of walked out thinking i really enjoyed that but you know max kind of highbrow uh, i don't know and he was just like he was stunned he said wow that's the kind of movie they should be making that's really not th this sounds like a, a take on that twilight zone episode the twilight zone episode the monsters of maple street or elm street i haven't seen that so i, I wouldn't i couldn't say all right. No, it's a, a Twilight Zone episode where uh, the um, turns out these aliens end up turning off the electricity in a neighborhood, and they watch the humans turn on each other. And it's a pretty down-ending episode. And it kind of 
sounds like it bears resemblances. Do, do you know? Do you guys know if he ended up seeing Gun Gangsty District Nine? No, I don't know. No, I don't know that. I can't remember. I don't. I can say no. Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, I you know I think for me of all the things that I'm not going to get to do with Mac uh, that we've talked about a plan. One thing that I will is the feature film script we co-wrote together based on the play, which was based on one of his short stories. And uh, it's science fiction. It's you know it's got aliens and but it's it's got a typical Mac thing where it's it's not the aliens you would expect. There's artificial intelligence and a whole bunch of cool stuff. And that I got you know. I'm really jazzed about the process, not the prospect, it is going ahead of doing it next year. And I'm just sorry he's not going to be around to see it, but one of the leading actors, Christina Kafari, who was in the original stage version of the play, and then she was in it when we took it out to Colorado for a fringe festival, she and Mac really hit it off, and she was as, as distraught as, she lives here in Halifax, works with mm. she was as distraught as I was. And... um when we found out that he had passed, and we both sort of sat down over coffee, which is ironic given Max's thing about coffee, and mm-hmm. we just said, "Look, you know, this move, we make this film. Um, she's just totally, she's already dedicated. That's what the kind of person she is. But she just said, "Look, we're just going to make the best film ever made um, to honor Mac." And I said, "Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Like, and and already people in in town here are saying, "Look, how can we help?" And they didn't even know the guy. They just know him through me or through Christina and the things that we would say about it and uh, they're inspired to work on it and help in any way they can just because mm. they figure if we liked them he had to be a good guy yeah i want to see the film what's it called it'll be called not doing time we've changed it to the omega sanction which is more filmy sci-fi kind uh-huh. of sound Will this be a tv movie or a movie 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 okay yeah i can't wait yeah. to see it. listen guys it's just about wrap-up time and i was thinking something really crazy and i'm just going to go with it and david will stop me and I'll ask each of you in turn, final words, if Mac is watching over us, and I sincerely hope that he is, what would you say to Mac? Patrick? Mac, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to get your book, The Cryptos Terrestrials, out there. Uh, that's the least thing I could do for you. Nicholas? Um... I would say, you know, I've got a lot of memories and I'm thankful for them and Mac was taken far too soon and if he's looking down on us, I hope he got a lot of laughs and memories uh, as much as we did doing the show tonight. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking as you mentioned that maybe Mac is there talking to John Keel and Richard Hall. (laughs) Richard Hall is looking at him and saying like Richard Hall said to me once, you're not welcome here. Paul, um, Mac, you uh, you you inspired me. Uh, you really were one of my best friends. Um, I there was never a minute where you and I were in the same room talking to each other that I wasn't uh, completely engaged and fascinated. I will always miss you. I'm better for having known you, and you still owe me twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Send the bill to his parents. 
That's right. And in season two of Ghost Cases, maybe I'll try and <laughs> maybe I'll try and collect um, <laughs> see if I can contact him from the great beyond. And you know what? Some people might think that's in poor taste, but I would say that's exactly what Mac would say. If he would have wanted, that. I think he would have yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah, try and think He's gonna he's gonna have a twenty dollar bill floating down in front of you. It's, it's gonna it's gonna have one of his illustrations on it instead of the uh, picture of the dead president. You know, it's not gonna come under a cup of coffee. <laughs> what was this thing about coffee and Mac that you always bring up? Oh, he's a coffee freak. I mean, like he was addicted to the stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, he he would down espressos. And, um, I don't know how many a day you would have, but I've I've seen him have three or four a day. Just and the coffee. All he worked at Starbucks too for many years. That was his Joe job during the day to uh, to help him, you know, sort of pay the rent and stuff. So he, when he came up here to do doing time, he, because he knew my um, fiance at the time was a, a huge, and still one of my best friends, a huge coffee fan. He brought Starbucks coffee. That was his, that was his point <laughs> whatever. He's like, and and the one person on the planet that would appreciate that was Linda, my fiance. So he was like, oh my God, he's the greatest guy ever. He brought coffee. <laughs> but you know, that's that's what he did. He carried coffee with him wherever he went. He'd always he was like he was the Santa Claus of coffee. He'd just leave Starbucks coffee in, in houses wherever he would show up. So Now I'm sorry I never met him because every morning, and David always rags on me about this every morning, I go out and get my wife a cup of coffee and get myself a cup of coffee, and now I'll never have the opportunity, at least on this plane of existence, to have Mac Tony's bring us a cup of coffee. And maybe he'd even get David to drink coffee. No man, I'm a tea drinker. But I would have, I would have actually brought Mac a bar of soap because that's my shtick. I take bars of soap wherever I go. I'm a soap fetishist. Oh, there it came out. I said it anyway. Okay, I now I, like, I was going to mention that Nicholas Redfern, like Paul Kimball, Patrick Weege, and of course Greg Bishop is here in spirit. We all remember Mac Tony's. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.